invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10 today. It's a foundational passage that comes at the conclusion of a whole lot of theology, which we a lot of times end up, how do I put that? Um, One of the, uh, I'll back up. I should have started this way. I like to go through books of the Bible. You who have been around at all know that. You would also realize that the last couple of months, I haven't been doing a tremendous amount of that because we've been looking at some different theological underpinnings of the church. And also uh, now as we look at this journey into what it means to walk in God's holiness and what he's done for us. And so one of the reasons I like going through books of the Bible is that by the time you get to a passage like Hebrews 10, chapter 10, verse 19 and beyond, you've, you've got these theological underpinnings dealing with... Uh, who Jesus is and what he has done. And so then the first word in a, in a passage like this in verse 19 is therefore. And so many times in the church, and I'm doing it today, I'm breaking my own rules, but so many times in the church we start at the therefore. And there's a reason the therefore is there, and we always, uh, the, the corny statement is, what's the therefore? Therefore. Right? Why is it there? Well, the author of Hebrews, whom we do not have a name on, uh, we don't. It's written anonymously, and the early church didn't have the records that we have of like Paul's writings and things like that on the book of Hebrews. It's generally Pauline, and it's thought that Paul uh, drove kind of the theological bus where Hebrews was written. But um, we see that we don't know who wrote Hebrews. There's lots of theories about who wrote Hebrews, and if you want to a really, it gets annoying after a while, an interesting rabbit trail, you can go Google that yourselves. I don't tell you that sometimes, you know, often, but it's interesting to see how many different ideas about who wrote Hebrews. Um, my general thought is more than likely Luke wrote Hebrews. Does it matter? No, it does not, because ultimately God, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, is the author of all Scripture. And he is the one who gives us this passage. So the first 10 chapters here into the 10th chapter, we see that Paul, or Paul, see I'm already doing it. Um, the author has building, built this framework of theology very strongly based out of the Old Testament on who Jesus is in relation to the sacrificial system, especially Leviticus. So uh, if you really want to have a fun time in a Bible study, you take the book of Leviticus, good luck. It's, there's a lot there, and it's kind of bloody. But we see how Christ comes to be the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. And Hebrews really is a, a picture of that fulfillment. We also see these different ideas of what kind of priest Jesus acts as our great high priest. You find that in Psalm 110. There are some great things there along the way. And if you really want your theological plate full Go, sit down and read the book of Hebrews this afternoon and um, come back to, with your questions later. So to this, to, but today we start at the therefore. And this is the reason that Jesus has done all of these things. The reason Jesus is who he is, the way that Jesus fulfilled the, the, uh, the sacrificial system. And we come to, in verse 19, the therefore. 
And there, we get some interesting things out of this passage, um, and, and we actually kind of get legalistic out of this passage. And I, uh, I don't think legalism is good, but I do think discipline is. Discipline being the practice of doing things that help grow our faith in Christ. And so as we look at this passage, these six verses, seven verses in here, that we are going to read today, we are going to see how God produces our holiness and how we live then in response to what he has done for us. So with that, let's go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. I invite you to stand as we read God's word and honor the God of this word. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, high pre- a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Thank you for your word, Lord, and let it speak to us today. And may we be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. This, since I first read it, which was probably in middle school. I even remember writing a little essay in school, in, in a public school, even at that, because they said you could write on whatever you want to. <laughs> I wrote it on this passage. I would love to read what I wrote today. I have no idea where that ended up. And I, it, it's probably in some dump in southern New Mexico because they cleaned out the house. All right, so anyway. Um, yeah. I love this passage for many reasons. And, and we'll come to one major one in the final verse. And some of you had that light ping on and go, wait, what does that actually mean? This is one of the only places in Scripture where it, in the New Testament, not so much in the Old Testament, where it actually talks about the gathering together of the saints. It talks about the church throughout the New Testament, but it doesn't necessarily say go to church. It actually doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. Some of you just say, wait, what? It doesn't say that. This is one of those passages where we find that. But we tend to look at verses 24 and 25 and drop them in somebody's lap and say, that's why you should go to church, because God said so. Now, is that wrong? No. Is that the best motivation? No, it is not. The motivation we find there is found beginning in verse 19 when we start looking at the holy places. Now, in the temple sacrificial system, and even back into the tabernacle as you go further into the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies was the place where all the fun happened. It was a place where the the God of the Israelites dwelled. It was a place that could only be entered once a year. They had a huge veil that was, that was I'm not, I can't even remember the specs on it, but definitely 20 feet tall and possibly taller than that and about a foot thick. And it, it was there to protect the people from the presence of God. 
Because if you came into the presence of God in an unworthy manner, you lost your life. And so the high priest would go in there once a year. He would have to do, go through all the rituals. He would have to go with a, a pure, spotless offering, the lamb. And he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat or on the propitiation, that wrath-bearing sacrifice. It's the same word in the Old and New Testament, that mercy seat and this sacrifice that we see in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament. And um, he would sprinkle the blood, and that would be an offering of faith for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. It happened once a year, and it was something that they had to be reminded of constantly. Well, when Jesus was crucified, who remembers what happened? That giant veil was torn from top to bottom. Now, there wasn't somebody up there with a saw going through that fabric, right? This was the hand of God opening his presence to the people, showing that the ultimate sacrifice, this pure Lamb of God, the great high priest, the King of kings, the that he would be the ultimate and pure offering that would give us free access to the Father. And so, I, and I quote Hebrews chapter 4 very often, we see that we have the confidence to run boldly into the presence of God because of the sacrifice. It's one of my favorite passages, and you can tell which ones people like is because it's the ones they say all the time, Right? And, uh, you know, I, I, I would go with Hebrews chapter 4. I go 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse. And you've heard me quote it m- m- over and over and over again. But what, what we find is that the one that alone was worthy to be the sacrifice is the reason the veil was torn. So now... The whole way they did things was turned upside down. Why was that veil torn? It's because the great high priest then offers access to all because he is the one who offers and imputes, who makes his holiness available to those who would believe in his name. And so now every believer, and this is one of my foundations of faith, is one of the reasons I'm a Baptist, is because of this concept of the priesthood of the believer. Every person who has placed their faith in Christ has that same access to the throne room. And in fact, you are in that presence at this point right now. Not because you're in this building. This building is just bricks and mortar and a roof. No, no, no. It has to do with how God now dwells in us. And that He, instead of us going to Him, has made Himself present in our lives through our faith in Jesus Christ when you believe in his name. And so now we live this life to be a blessing to the Lord. A.W. Tozer, whose text I'm using as kind of the outline of where we're going through here, says, ransomed men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God, God wills that we should push on into his presence, and live our whole life there. So instead of giving our most pure offering to a priest to go through this veil, to hope that God is happy with our offering, 
we realize that offering has been made and now that life is offered in His name. He gives us free access to it because we have believed that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. comes back to, again to our verse, the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. God gave us eternal life, and whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not believe in the Son does not have life. This life we find is a resurrection life because we in ourselves are dead in our sins. And by our faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought to life and to eternal life so that in this life now, we genuinely, spiritually live in the presence of the Holy One. And that now, when we live our lives, we should live in a way that would bless Him in all things because we are in His presence at all times. Ponder that for a moment. The one worthy has made us worthy. You cannot become more worthy later than you are at this moment because our righteousness is in Christ alone. Now, can we live in a way, can we grow in our faith to become more like Him in this life? Absolutely. Because in this flesh, we're always dealing with that sin problem. We're always trying to overcome sin in our own lives and the effect of sin in the lives of others. Every decision we make affects somebody else. It affects everybody else. Because sin sin's the problem. And in this flesh, we're going to deal with it. But in Christ, our state, our, ho- our, our belief, our trust in Him will never change because He never changes. He is eternal. What does that mean? That means He lives in the now. That He sees our entire existence. He see, sees all of pi- history as, as basically, in the best way I can come up with it, and it may not be the best way at all because I'm not that smart, is a photograph. He sees it all from beginning to end. And there will be a conclusion. And it, 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 it alludes to that at the end of this passage here. So, you know, we encourage one another as the day approaches. What is that day? That's the day of His return. As we are ready for that. God is eternal. He is eternal. Immutable. Now that, I didn't put it up on the screen. I-M-M-U-T-A-B-L-E. Immutable. All right. So what does that mean? That means he does not change. And some people wish God would change because we don't like the things he has to tell us in his word about who we are. Why can't God change his mind? But here's, here's the deal. is that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he changes, that means somehow he can become better or worse than he is now. But he's already the eternal almighty God. He is the creator of all things. He has made all things good in his sight. And it's his work that does that. If we want God to change, that would mean somehow that he isn't perfect already. We worship a perfect, holy God. He is all-knowing. He is omniscient. Now, This is, I think, where we start getting paranoid about God. (laughs) Because even our deepest, darkest secrets, He already knows. Hear me, let me take it one step further. He knew Him before you knew Him. 
And he's going to know what you did already. But it says that his forgiveness is, his, his, he, he chooses to not remember our sins as far as the east is from the west. In his forgiveness, he puts the blood of Christ. And that even as he knows all of our sins, and he knows all of our problems, and he knows that we are unworthy, he loves us. And He is that great high priest who paid the price for us. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. And ultimately, what it comes down to is He is holy. He is set apart. He is different. He is unique. And He desires for us to walk in His holiness. He is our righteousness. He changes us so that we might walk in faith in Him. How does that flesh itself out? Through love, love for him, love for one another, through his mercy, and through his righteousness. How we see that all fleshed out with us. But the problem is, is that when we see that veil come down, that great high priest, we then try to put up our own. Because I think we, we start to see how we are not eternal, and we are not immutable, and we are not all-knowing, and we are not holy. And so we end up putting up these really lame little curtains in our lives and try to hide things from God. And we, we try to start, start, start talking about things like our own righteousness, being self-righteous. You know, I'm right just because I decided it to be. That's a bad place to be, friends. We try to be self-confident. We try to be self-sufficient. We admire ourselves. We love ourselves more than we love anything else. And that breaks what Jesus calls the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The assumption is that we already do love ourselves. A lot. But in our own existence, in our own state of being, we will never be worthy. But Jesus has made it so. Another quote from Tozer he uses smarter thoughts than I do. I like that. I like some of the things he has to say here. Self is the opaque veil. You know what opaque means? You can't see through it. That hides the face of God from us. It can be removed only in spiritual experience, never by mere instruction. So in order to experience the goodness and the holiness of God, we have to come to him honestly. And we can learn everything we can out of the Bible. But until it takes root in our existence, in our heart, in our passions, we'll never truly know the God who has made it possible for us to know Him. We need to encounter God personally to, as it would be said, receive Christ as our Savior. Because we in ourselves are unworthy. You know, we can fake it in a lot of places, but not before the throne of God. Our level of devotion to Jesus is obvious to all. 
whether God himself or to humanity. It's not about being self-righteous or showing how good I am in the throne room, uh, that my, how my robes are the cleanest, how I'm wearing the best cologne. Because we wear all those things to cover up the problem. That in ourselves, we are dying. And here's the thing about death. It stinks. Literally, and spiritually, and yeah, wherever else you want to, adverbs you want to put there. The reason we take baths is because our lives are smelly. I'll lend you my kids if you don't think that's a pain. I say, uh, you know, find me after I've been working in the yard. You'll tell me to go get cleaned up because you don't want to smell that, smell that stink. Our unholiness is not something we can take care of ourselves. Only God can change us when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then he calls us then to live a life worthy of what he has already done in us. So holiness is an effect then in this life of what God has already done in us. So when we come to all of these verses here, and verse 21, it says, Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart and full assurance of faith, not to be afraid of this great high priest, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to, to, to the confession of our hope without wavering. What is that confession? I'm glad you asked because they say it right there. He who promised is faithful. Our salvation is not about us and how good we think we can be. It has to do with how good God is and how worthy He is of our worship. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other translations, it says, spur one another on to love and good deeds. I'm not a cowboy, although I do like them. I've never in my life worn spurs. I have a feeling if I tried to put on cowboy boots right now, there would be a lot of people being entertained. But we see that the spurs, what do spurs do to the horse? It gets them moving. Right? And in here, in this translation, it says, stir up one another to love and good works. We should be encouraging each other to get better. In verse 25, though, is where we get into some legalism sometimes in the church. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, we need to gather together in order to be reminded of what God has done for us. That is the whole reason of the gathering. Is that we are reminded of God's goodness and we can worship Him as His body. And we are greatly privileged in this nation to have the freedom to do so. Because there are 
thousands of places in this world that you will be arrested simply for doing that. When we gather together, it's not so that God won't zap us. It's because He has not zapped us. Make sense? I hear a lot of people say, oh, I'm walking into a church building, lightning's going to strike. Well, I sure hope not. Because, you know, we've had to deal with a lot of natural disasters in this world. We had to get a new roof on the building a couple of years ago. I really don't want to have to do that again anytime soon. Especially if there's a hole burned out just because David Britton walked in the door. Just kidding. <laughs> I had to pick who I was going to pick on in that one. Anyway, no, what, when, when we come into the presence of God, when we come into this place to worship Him, it's because He is already in us. And this is where we gather together to re- be reminded of His faithfulness. And so when we gather as the church, it's not to check off the list to make sure we did it right. It's to encourage one another to do more for the kingdom. So be encouraged. You know, I'm always happy to see people after they haven't been here for a while. And I, you know, I, I'm a, kind of a snarky guy. Sometimes I'll make a comment on it. But d- realize that God is blessed by your desire to gather with His people. And we are glad you're here. And I am encouraged because we know That even in the hardship of this world, the day is coming for His return. And this expectation in the New Testament is real that God is coming back. Most of the New Testament was written with the expectation that God would return in their lifetime. Do you know that? It's only been 2,000 years. A couple days. Right? We still live on that promise that this day is approaching. Why? Because God desires that the gospel go forth to all the corners of the earth. That we proclaim the good news of His salvation to every person. To every tribe, tongue, and people. And He started with this small group, this small nation, and gave His promise of the Messiah. And that Messiah paid the penalty for our sins so that we could run boldly into His presence. So realize, when you enter these doors, while we have consecrated this place to worship Him together, it is a reflection of what He's already done in us. And when we have spent our days during the week focused on His goodness and His holiness, and living in a manner of realizing what He has done for us and giving us access to the Holy of Holies, that veil it becomes in our, in that we put up in our own lives, we sweep it away because we realize we can't hide anything from Him anyway. And that's when we have true fellowship with our Father. God is not going to love you more than He already does. He loves everybody, and that's why He sent His Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He offers us life because He knows we're dead. 
for me to live as Christ, die as gain. What does that mean? That means we lay down our own lives now as Christ did for us so that more and more people would know him. The pursuit of holiness brings us back to this place where we realize that the only, real, the only way we come into the presence of God is by his goodness. I'm always going to trip up. I'm always going to fail. But his love never changes. And he invites us there because he loves us. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are faithful. I'm unworthy of your grace and your mercy. I pray, Lord, that now as we consider your goodness, we would be reminded the reason we gather is because you are worthy of worship and you have redeemed our lives. Help us, Lord, to lay down our fears, to lay down our self-righteousness and come boldly into your presence. Help us go from this place realizing you've given us your presence. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together as uh, Allison and